Hello, listeners of the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, here with my co-host, Marie Mayhew. Marie! Hi, Chris. Hi, brand new listeners who have never heard our show before. Yes, hello! Welcome! We hope that you like what you hear, but we just wanted to kind of pop in here at the very beginning, because A, the show is completely different now than it was back then. Mm -hmm. Uh, What you're listening to, Mm -hmm. or what you will be listening to in a couple of moments, was recorded in a, I'm not even kidding, completely wooden home in New Hampshire. There are no carpets or anything. Mm -hmm. My voice Mm -hmm. is just ringing against walls. There's echoing. I say, um, a bajillion times. We didn't have Jake to edit for us. Jake, shouts outs to Jake up here. And the show, yes. we didn't have and Marie. Ghosts. There was, we didn't, you were like haunted. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. There, and you it, didn't have, you didn't have all of this happening over here, people. No. So here's the thing, right? The first episodes are a lot more serious. They're a lot more. I mean, I literally wrote scripts for them. If you like that stuff, great. Please continue listening. However, if you want to get a sense of what the show is like now, I suggest you jump up to last season. So that's season three, mm-hmm. which kind of starts with uh, the season opener with the dirty with the Dirty Bits podcast. But if you want really like the first series that we did together, it's probably Magical Clothing Part One. Uh, the whole idea Aww. here, which is adorable, right? Good times. It yeah. was good times. It was, it was good great times. times. It was it's great times. listening. The reason we wanted to kind of bring this up and just throw this in at the beginning of the first episode ever is because the show really has changed a lot. It's a lot less rough around the edges today than it was back then. We've gotten a lot better at doing this. The format has changed to make it a little bit more interactive and exciting, hopefully, for the listeners. And frankly, if you like those early episodes, you might not like the new stuff and vice versa. If you like the new stuff, you might not like those early ones. So please give it a listen. Check it out. And... If you like the new stuff, come on back and listen to this old series. Anyways, thank you so much for just giving the show a chance in the first place. We love you all, even if you don't continue listening. We hope you'll come back someday. Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Cogswell, the previously mentioned Mad Scientist. Tonight's episode hopes to give insight into a fundamental question with concerns to the paranormal, namely in a world where the sciences are very quickly becoming merged into an all-encompassing whole, and the space left over for spirituality and religious explanations is rapidly shrinking. Why do paranormal beliefs persist, and is there a place for them? Welcome to the Mad Scientist Podcast. Tonight's episode, Is There Room for the Paranormal Does the paranormal have a place in the modern world? Does it make any sense that we continue to search for things like ghosts, demons, poltergeists, angels, out-of-body experiences, all of the various spirit-related phenomena people claim to have experienced? To start with, I want to make it clear that I am not trying to make any kind of religious claims here. I think it will be obvious by the end of this episode that despite my own skeptical beliefs, I don't think we can out-of-hand deny that things like the soul or heaven or hell can exist, for the philosophical reasons that will be laid out in a little bit. However, for the purpose of full disclosure, although I was raised Roman Catholic, I don't have any particular faith at this point in my life. But again, can't deny the possibility for the existence of things like ghosts or, you know, whatever. Secondly, I think it's important to state that although this particular episode doesn't deal with things like Bigfoot, which incidentally is one of my favorite parascientific or fringe topics, um, those things will eventually make it onto the show and onto the docket. I have a huge backlog of topics to go into the history on and the philosophy and science behind, but I think a good start is really the elephant in the room. 
I don't think it is hard to imagine that just maybe something like Bigfoot could exist. But for a lot of people, ghosts and demons are just too fringe to even accept. But I think there's a lot of interesting questions still out there on these topics, and weird things that historically have led to our current thoughts on these spirit things that have not only somewhat choked the discussion on the topic, but also led to a whole lot of scientific fooey that gets used all the time. These more magical aspects of the paranormal are really the crux of this episode, and specifically how our mindset went from one centered on a magical way of thinking to a scientific way of thinking. To start asking the question if the paranormal can still find a place in the modern world, I think it's important to begin by seeing how we got to our current view on spirits, and more fundamentally our scientific worldview. If you ask anyone what they know about the current search for ghosts, they would probably tell you about searching for EVP, or measuring electromagnetic disturbances, but why do we take it for granted that ghosts need to be natural things? What reasoning is there for us to think that ghosts will have some effect on molecules or particles or electromagnetic waves when they're in a room with us? At the other extreme, we have supposed mediums who can speak to our relatives, who all say have never had one of those ghost hunting crews with all their science equipment in the room with them, despite the fact that they are in theory communicating with ghosts and making them come into rooms when they call on them from the other side. I would seriously pay pay-per-view money to see an episode like that. If the ghost hunting people are telling the truth, and they can measure ghosts when they're inside of a room or a house or a graveyard, and the medium is telling the truth, and they can basically see ghosts or cause them to come down and communicate with them, then it seems like a no-brainer to put the two together and get some verifiable measurements here. But both of these teams are operating on different wavelengths. No bad electromagnetic pun intended. The medium may not expect the ghost to be a physical thing, while the ghost hunting teams seem to take that as a basic assumption of their methods. When did ghosts become a physical thing? I think one of the most fascinating case studies of this transition, and one that thankfully has garnered a lot of study over the years, is the change that happened to witchcraft or demonological thinking up to the present day. This really showcases how our magical way of thinking was changed by the presence of true scientific discovery, although magical thinking has not fully lost its power over our everyday lives. Besides things like podcasts on ghosts and TV shows about mediums, we see leftovers of our magical worldview every day. One thing that has become fetishized recently has been where our food comes from, as opposed to what they are, um, which is something that is maybe not fully a magical view, but clearly this idea of the providence of a thing affecting the qualities of the thing is a very kind of holdover from magical times. For instance, despite the fact that two tomatoes, A and B, are completely identical on a molecular and genetic level, the fact that tomato A is grown in an open field, while B was grown in a factory farm indoors, will leave a lot of people to choose tomato A whenever possible. Despite the fact that the two things are identical, we still choose A because the history of the object matters to us for some reason. Although rationally it has no effect, in our minds we still want one that has the sheen of a more natural providence, because we just sort of feel that tomato A is more trustworthy. So tomatoes aside, witchcraft and magical thinking go hand in hand, and we can track our change from magical to scientific worldviews through the changes in witchcraft prosecution and thoughts on the topic. Witchcraft has always sort of been a part of European culture, with folk magicians or cunning folk providing healing and other sorts of help in local villages and towns. Eventually, however, these healers or herb sellers began to take on negative sorts of connotations in the surrounding area. While in the beginning of witchcraft lore, religious leaders considered witches to be victims to the devil or his demonic subjects, over time witches became viewed as people who actively sought out demonic powers. Another interesting aspect of this change is that witches were considered to be primarily female, something that there is a really great literature background on. 
One quote that really shows this way of thinking comes from Nicholas Remy from 1595. And he said, quote, It is not unreasonable that this scum of humanity, witches, should be drawn chiefly from the feminine sex. So, pretty crazy. Clearly, clearly Mr. Remy uh, did not like females in particular. He then goes on to say, The devil uses them so, because he knows that women love carnal pleasures, and he means to bind them to his allegiance by such agreeable provocations. Really a, a pretty crazy sort of argument. So the thinking was that the thinking was that females were easier to for the devil to trick because he could get them to, you know, uh, give in to their greed or lust or gluttony or whatever. Although I, I think history shows that that's pretty common to both sexes and all genders equally. Anyways, so witchcraft persecution really started in earnest in the 15th century, culminating in a number of pretty wide-ranging witch trials and mass killings a papal bull, a bunch of books, and all kinds of crazy stuff, before finally petering out around 1750. Salem in Massachusetts was one of the last big cases of witch persecution, and is often put as a shocking case specifically because it occurred so late in the uh, mania. This decline in witchcraft persecution came about partially because of changing views on what witches or demons could actually achieve, with skeptical views of witchcraft really starting to take hold as a more scientific worldview came into focus. One huge division that began this trend is the switch that occurred with Thomas Aquinas, who divided the religious spheres of influence into three categories. These were the natural, or as he said, natural is what happens always or most of the time, preternatural, which is what happens rarely, but nonetheless by the agency of created beings, marvels belong, properly speaking, to the realm of the preternatural, and finally supernatural, which he said was God's unmediated actions. From this shift, witches and demons went from being things that we could not have any hope of measuring or quantifying through scientific study to something that we could find proof for. The reasons for this are multiple, but one interesting take is that this shift occurred so readily because it gave us proof of God's existence outside of the miraculous, which happened very rarely. If witches and demons were real, and we could actually find them in our lives and study them, then in a strange way we could study God secondhand. Furthermore, this meant we could combat witchcraft and demons in a way that was much more down-to-earth than asking God for help. Instead, we could act against demons as human beings ourselves, and thereby have some mode of control over something that previously was considered truly supernatural. This distinction doesn't seem all that important at first glance, but some clarification shows just how different it was. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Lorraine Daston has said that although demons, astral intelligences, and other spirits might manipulate natural causes with superhuman dexterity and thereby work marvels, as mere creatures they could never transcend from the preternatural to the supernatural and work genuine miracles. This means that preternatural things are almost trickery, like a fake miracle that we cannot really understand as being different from the work of God at first glance, but after careful study will show itself to be actually caused by Natural but uncommon things. So while before witches were thought to actively cause the death of cattle by magically inducing them to die, 
Now witches were taught how to brew potions by their demonic guides that, when given to the cows, caused them to become sick. Demons went from being something we could not study, to something that science could be applied to. And with this new application, demons and ghosts and witches lost some of their credibility as ideas. As Daston says again, to simplify the historical sequence somewhat, first, preternatural phenomena were demonized and thereby incidentally naturalized. Then the demons were deleted, leaving only the natural cases. This slow shift from a purely magical explanation for witchcraft, to a preternatural explanation, to a fully natural explanation for the observed phenomena attributed to witches and subsequent deletion of witches from the natural world completely, is the same sort of path that all magical ways of thinking take before they disappear. As science moves ever forward, the place for magic shrinks until all that is left is the phenomena which magic was initially used to explain, and a shiny new scientific explanation for the same way of thinking. And you can see that even today we are in the same position with things like ghosts. No one seeks for ghosts by invoking magical rituals. Instead we look for them with EMF detectors and thermal cameras. Ghosts have become a set of observable, quantifiable variables that we can look for, and it isn't hard to see how in a century or so we will look back at our search for ghosts and realize that maybe these things we called ghosts were really just electrical disturbances or infrasound or any other scientifically explainable phenomena. So where does this leave us with the paranormal? Does the search for ghosts have to go the way of the search of witches? I don't think so. And the reasons I hesitate to say that it must be the case that ghosts or spirits or whatever will become fully scientific things is that I don't know if philosophically the world is reducible in that way. Well, so what do I mean by reducible? Reductionism is a philosophical idea whereby more complex systems, in this case scientific systems, can be explained by the properties of the less complex systems that they are made up of. So if everything in the universe is made up of subatomic particles, and we know how subatomic particles behave, the reductionist argument is that we should be able to, with enough computational power and time, describe chemical and biological phenomena by the interaction of these subatomic particles. However, clearly this argument falls short in a number of important ways. One of my favorite philosophical arguments, both because when I tell people at parties that I have a philosophy degree, they always bring it up, and because of just how powerfully instructive it is in this case, is that of color. At the bulk level, atoms that come together into a molecule, and then molecules which come together into macroscopic items, will have some color that we can detect with our eyes. However, where does the color of these items end? If I took a piece of aluminum, and kept breaking up the piece into smaller and smaller pieces, would I eventually come to a point where the color of the aluminum is no longer observed? What if I broke it up into individual aluminum atoms? Into electrons, protons, and neutrons? In this case, it may be that color of the bulk item seems to not be a property of the individual pieces that make up the bulk item. This sort of property is known as an emergent property. A great quote on this topic is by J.S. Mill, and kind of gives some idea of how it applies to the sciences. All organized bodies are composed of parts, similar to those composing inorganic nature, and which have even themselves existed in an inorganic state. But the phenomena of life, which results from the juxtaposition of those parts in a certain manner, bear no analogy to any of the effects which would be produced by the action of the component substances considered as mere physical agents. To whatever degree we might imagine our knowledge of the properties of the several ingredients of a living body to be extended and perfected, it is certain that no mere summing up of the separate actions of those elements will ever amount to the action of the living body itself. In other words, it seems illogical to uh, J.S. Mill that if we were to be able to understand all of the actions of subatomic particles, that we could then go from that 
to explaining, for instance, the the flight patterns of a bird or something. The biological sciences don't seem nearly as reducible as the chemical sciences. And even chemistry, if we really look at it, has a lot of things that aren't really all that reducible to physics. So while color as an emergent property is interesting, the most important application of this sort of argument for this discussion is to that of consciousness as an emergent property of the brain. Consciousness is what many of us would consider to be that thing that is most closely associated with the soul. If ghosts exist, if demons are out there, we imagine that they are probably something that has a consciousness, or maybe is that consciousness free of the physical body. But that only works if consciousness is not connected ultimately to the brain itself. In this idea, consciousness would need to be fully separated from the brain. It is not even an emergent property, but a secondary sort of thing that exists on its own. An interesting quote on this dilemma is given by Eliza S. Yudkowsky, an AI theorist. He says that, quote, Part of the rationalist ethos is binding yourself emotionally to an absolutely lawful reductionist universe, a universe containing no ontologically basic mental things such as souls or magic, and pouring all your hope and all your care into that merely real universe and its possibilities without disappointment. While I can't say anything about the soul as its own sort of thing, I think that the question of whether or not consciousness can be explained through reductionist arguments is very much still unanswered. The mind cannot be reduced to the body, and so the mind-body problem is very obviously still a real issue for scientists and philosophers. And it is this unknown that still leaves room for the paranormal. Could ghosts feasibly exist? Could the mind not be completely wired to the body, but instead act as an emergent property? Or even as its own fundamentally different sort of thing? I think an argument could be made that yes, maybe that is possible. There isn't really anything to completely stop that from being the case. So although our search for ghosts currently relies on physical testing, maybe that is a completely failed endeavor if the mind or soul is linked to the body through a material sort of reduction, so that the soul can be detected with an EMF reader, then there is reason to think that perhaps it is only an emergent property, and so cannot be separated from the brain at all. If, however, the soul is its own sort of thing, then maybe measuring it is not possible at all, since it is of a different kind entirely from the physical universe. In either case, we lose at least one science fiction fantasy. If the mind is an emergent property of the brain, then we can have androids, but maybe no ghosts. If, however, the mind is separate from the body completely, then perhaps we can have androids, but can continue to look for ghosts in haunted houses and graveyards. This show would not have been possible without the help of the crew at Astonishing Legends, who not only gave me the first insight into their process, but also the encouragement to start something of my own. I highly suggest you give them a listen. They were the impetus to start this whole thing up and really um, one of the best podcasts around. For questions or concerns, please reach out to me on Tumblr, WordPress, or email at themadscientistpodcast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will focus on the Pyramids of Giza and Pyramid Fui in general. Um, going into the math and the pyramid power theory and, and all that good triangular stuff. Until next time. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe. 
and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.